WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Time for a regular segment with the New Hampshire Bulletin. They join the show every Friday in the 6 a.m. hour. This week, reporter Anne-Marie Timmons, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get all the uh, articles that they write over there. But let's start off with a proposed changes to relig- religious exemption form for school vaccine mandates is getting a bunch of pushback. And uh, not terribly surprised, especially in light of vaccines becoming so uh, on the front of everyone's minds the last couple of years. Yes. Yeah, so the um, legislature this year said the schools really need to make it easier for parents to request a religious exemption from uh, the six school vaccines that are re- required to go to school or childcare. Um, COVID-19 is not on there, but there's six that have been there for a long time. Um, so right now, 2% of parents of children preschool to grade 12 in both public and private schools request um, religious exemptions. So it's a, sm- a small percentage. It was a big topic in the legislature this year anyway. So the legislature said you can no longer require parents to get this form notarized um, when they submit a request for a religious exemption. So they that, that was the extent of the bill. Take off the notary. They can just fill out the form. So the Department of Health and Human Services has to propose a new form Um, and a new process, and they're taking that to the Joint Legislative Administrative um, Committee, JLCA. And so we we took a look at what's on there. Um, Sure enough, the notarization requirement is gone, but it's a different form, and this is what's upsetting people. Um, It it asks you to identify which vaccine your child doesn't have, because some parents get some vaccines when others, so it wants to know which one you did not get, which is upsetting um, to some who say that's just too invasive. That's you're asking for medical information um, and we don't want to tell you which one. And then there's also a requirement that parents acknowledge that foregoing a vaccine puts their child at risk of that disease that it targets and risks them exposing classmates to it. Um, The department said we included that um, specific request for uh, specific vaccines just to make it easier to know, like if there is some kind of public health uh, problem, epidemic, an outbreak, they'll know more specifically which child might, children might be at risk if they don't have this vaccine versus that. Uh, so this will go before a committee. Um, there will be a public hearing eventually on this that hasn't been scheduled, but it will work its way through in the next few months, I would say. Um, so there'll be some discussion there. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the end. Um, sometimes the loudest people in the room aren't the majority. And so I think we'll have to see where that goes. Um, right now, the form is up on the Department of Health and Human Services website. It's optional at the moment, um, but it is up there now um, for parents if they so choose. Um, that's also upsetting to critics who feel like it needs to get this um, review and at least temporary approval by the committee before it's up there. So lots, lots of contention around this form. Now, in the sure. state of New Hampshire, is there a charge for having something notarized? I didn't think there, that you were allowed to charge in the state for that, So, which greatly reduces the hurdle that would be involved since most town halls offer that service. Right. Like I just I hate it when I have to get something notarized. It feels like a big headache because where do you go? You have to go during work hours. It is a hassle. Um, so I think that that was um 
a big hurdle for some parents. Now I asked the department if that requirement is gone, do you expect that number to go way up? And they said, we really don't. Um, what they're concerned about is that nine, there's a 9% decrease in the number of children up to date on the other childhood vaccines, all the six that you're supposed to have. Um, and that's because during COVID, parents, like a lot of people did not want to go into the doctor's office. Um, it was a scary, dangerous place to be for a long time. And so they missed those well child visits, which is when doctors say, oh, you're at this point in the vaccine schedule. We have to get this vaccine out. So um, that's their bigger concern that they need to catch up. And that's on the increase, but it's slowly increasing. Yeah. I mean, that this is going to make it even harder for this to to get past the Democrats, especially that are going to be against and probably some Republicans that are going to be against it, because the as it is with the with these regular vaccines like polio and all this stuff that that was just in, in for the most part eradicated from the population entirely. Now, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you have this huge population of young children that didn't get it at the time when they would have ordinarily the chances of them getting after that point it's lower and lower and then to lose that incentive of school making you get the shots that you really should get in order to prevent another pandemic uh, the, mm -hmm. or just in general outbreaks of really painful terrible diseases that the these uh, vaccines stop is going to be higher right right um and i mean we didn't think polio would ever come back and now we have a case in new york and i was i moderated a panel today um about children's mental health resources but also um, vaccinations. And I asked a head of a um, Concord High's nursing medical department, like, how would you convince parents that they need to be up on these, you know, non-COVID, we were talking non-COVID vaccines. And she said, well, you could die. You know, <laughs> I don't mean to be dramatic. Your child could die. Like meningitis is no joke. So you really have to take these seriously um, and I don't, I wouldn't, I don't feel like it's a, a change in heart necessarily about these vaccines. I think it was an access issue during COVID. And so we'll see how that goes. Um, if, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that there's not a long wait to get into a doctor's office to get those vaccines, but it does mean, as we know, often taking time off from work, getting a ride, um, getting the kid in, taking the kid out of school. So it's not, um, it's not nothing. It's, there's a little bit of a hurdle there, but they do see that number going up right now. Yeah, hey, I'm hopeful because it's only 2% currently mm -hmm. when, yeah, yeah, there's a hurdle. But if it was really a big problem, I mean, you'd be seeing north of 10%. Like, like there's enough people in the state that would be that would be upset about something like this, especially given our political makeup where, where mm -hmm. the, there'd be a, a bigger red flag around this problem. Yes. Yeah, stay tuned to the bulletin on <laughs> September 15th. We'll be at the hearing where this is supposed to come up and we'll get an initial sense of this, you know, massive committee of lawmakers will um, go for these rules or ask the department to edit them a bit. Um, so this will develop. It will it will be at least another month or more before we see any kind of final rule. And when that's in proposed public hearing, public can go and comment in person or in writing. And we'll certainly make um, sure we have that date and opportunity in the bulletin. 
Something I love uh, to bring up with reporters is access to information so you can write your articles. Uh, there's an effort to digitize town reports that's close to completion, which which is amazing. I mean, there's so many things that get filed with your local town or city hall that um, isn't is important for historical records. There's for data collection to figure out statistics for various things. Investigative reporters uh, always have to trudge through all sorts of paper documents, which uh, <laughs> I can only imagine what fresh hell that feels like after a couple days of that. Uh, what's going <laughs> on with us uh, this is one of those stories that should have been a 20 30 minute story that i managed to turn into a many hour story because i found it so interesting um so the every town in the state has to send its annual town report to the um, state library and there they live in paper form but there's been an effort to digitize them so that you can go online and read them and there's about i think 20 towns left that haven't been digitized yet. And so they were supposed to have those done by the end of August. Um, they'll now get it done by November, it looks like. I mean, it's almost 2 million pages of documents because wow. these um, town reports, some go back to the mid 1800s. They average 150 pages each. Um, and I'm not the only one who loves reading this ye old information because since 2020, 136 people from 136 countries have downloaded these documents 25,000 times. Um, they're fascinating. They are, um, you go back far enough in the, in the uh, mid twenties, the state was apparently debating what to do with married female teachers um, and decided that in Dover, their decision was, well, we will terminate their contract immediately if they get married and then the school board can decide if they should stay or not. But that, you know, you look at that town report in Dover and it acknowledges that this is a statewide debate going on at that time. Um, I found information about, you know, how many forest fires we're seeing, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago versus now. So that's just interesting um, data to compare. It's also interesting to see what towns were tracking. Um, one town had a list, a number of all the dogs that were registered, but somehow also had the number of dogs that were scoff laws and were not registered. So why? Why were they tracking that? Um, so I talked to the state library. I said, why is there such interest? And he said, genealogy is the fastest growing hobby um, in this country and that this provides a lot of records uh, for you know genealogists because you often, if you go back far enough, you not only see how many um, people were married in a town, but you might see names and who they married and when they married and where they married. So you can start to track, you know, lives and who who was where when. Um, I really encourage you to delve in and get lost in these records. They're so interesting. Uh, I can't possibly give you the website verbally, but if you go to my story, it'll be in there and you can link through it. And it's a very easy website to use and you can search each record as well. So set aside a few hours and um, enjoy. There's so many applications for stuff like this. I mean, a big thing that came came to mind as we were talking about is after many years, I don't know how I waited till uh, just a month ago to listen to it, but NHPR's Bear Brook. Uh, oh. podcast diving into that which is amazing i mean it's it's the same quality as if you're listening to serial he, they did an amazing job over there big, yes. big props to them for that project but a huge part of them finding anything any leads in that case had to do with genealogy and looking through mm -hmm. records of various towns cities and uh internationally and everything like that 
Right. They used, you know, I don't know that they use Ancestry and me uh, or one of the other services, but they're able to use some DNA from this person and that person. Then some amateur genealogist went in online, found some records and linked families because the the um, suspect in that case uh, lived under several fake names. So yeah. very hard person to track down. Um, so yeah, that podcast, if you haven't listened to it, it's, it's so, so I know they're competing stage, yeah. but go check it out. It's, it's, really Oh no, hard. I think of them as our friends. Yes, that is our friends. great. They're great. We compete with no one. Exactly. We exactly. collaborate. Just don't tell Gordon Humphrey. Okay. <laughs> Um, it's a very good podcast. It, it's great. Uh, and I have NHPR journalists on my show, too. So, all right. Well, I want to be sure to cover this because it's such an important story. Uh, it looks like there's a planned maternity ward closure and it's getting attention from the state. And there, there's some pretty big implications of something like this going on. Right. Um, so Frisbee uh, Memorial Hospital is intending to close its maternity ward in addition to a couple of other units, um, because these, as they are, have found, like others have found, I'm going to look at my cheat sheet here, um, since 2011, 2011 maternity hospitals or standalone units have closed. So that that leaves 15. So, you know, in, in five standalones. So there's 20 places in the state that you can deliver a baby, um, not in your home, you know, if you don't have a midwife come to your home. So, and this, these aren't everywhere across the state. So it's not only few, but they're pocketed in parts of the state. So Frisbee wanted to close down for the same reason those other places did. Um, it's, they just can't make the finances work. And partly that's because the cost of medical malpractice insurance has more than tripled um, and Medicaid reimbursement rates have not done that. Um, and so one woman said, you know, for all the Medicaid births we're delivering, we are paying to deliver those. We are not getting paid to do it. Um, and so with a lot of heartache, um, a birthing center in Concord, the woman who owns that is going to be closing. She's still open now. She'll close next year because of the finances. She said it was a hard decision because she felt like she was letting the community down, but she just couldn't make the numbers work. Um, Frisbee for the same reason. What's interesting about Frisbee is they had a merger a few years ago. And part of that merger was we will not close the maternity ward or any other ward um, within five years. Um, this is this violates that. The out in the clause is that if it was sort of essentially unavoidable. So the state is looking into was this unavoidable? Um, and so we'll, we'll still see, but that is their plan. So if they don't do it now for some reason, it looks like we can count on it happening three years from now because they'll be outside that five-year window. Yeah, my my knee jerk reaction was like, what what kind of authority is the state to get involved with that? But there's there's a public health angle to it. There's also the business angle since they did have that agreement. I mean, they they can get right. in pretty big trouble. Right. The charitable trust unit oversees things like this, and so they want to look into it and really evaluate how they decided to close, why they're closing, could they have made it work in another way? Um, just to think, like if these keep closing, what do you do? And one thing we're seeing is more and more babies being born in places they weren't intended to be born. And, you know, ambulance crews are increasingly delivering babies because if you have a, live in a place where there's not immediate access because your place has closed like up north, 
for example, it takes a long time to get to the hospital and you might not have a lot of time. So sides of the road at home when they didn't intend to. So um, that's do the, the ice, Do the roads get slippery in the winter? Sometimes up north they do. Um, and for some births that go, a lot of births, you know, are smooth and, and go fine. And maybe that's okay if they, in a pinch, have to do that. There's not a huge risk, but there's complicated births too. And you don't want those happening on the side of the road. You want those um, in good care in hospitals. And so there is an increasing concern about what to do there. The other thing is the Department of Health and Human Services sees this really as an economic um, survival issue for towns. If you live you're thinking about where to move in the state. Do you want to go to a place where there's not sort of a, you know, birth to death medical services there? How does that affect um, how towns survive or not? So it's it's far more than that individual pregnancy. It's pretty wide reaching. And I hadn't thought about that piece, but I thought it was interesting. Um, so I think we'll see more of this is my concern. Um, so we'll be watching for that. Yeah. People like assume it's like the emergency room, which is I'm pretty sure is a, is a, is a is a big cost to hospitals to to be able to continue to have so people just assume that they're going to have a maternity ward at all their local hospitals it's, it's kind of shocking to hear that it's it's something that they specifically need to set up and have separate right and that they can not have it and so um and these birthing centers which are not they they tend to be um, more natural births there's not a lot of interventions it also has a lot more services so these birthing centers um, operated by midwives are uh, do much more sort of um almost like social service in-home visits they go and they talk about nutrition and they talk about um, health generally and they visit after um, and so those places offer a very different kind of holistic um, pregnancy care. And they also, I mean, they just don't get the Medicaid reimbursements and people sort of don't understand that that can be there. They'll argue like we are cost saving, like we're a cheaper way to do more, um, than a hospital. So please look at us. If, if I think we're not, we're a good alternative, but there you need the Medicaid rate and reimbursements too. Those just did increase a little bit, but a little bit doesn't match a triple increase in malpractice insurance. How much of this is a symptom of just a, the disastrous financial situation that hospitals in the state have been facing more and more over the last couple of decades? So there's been so many mergers and questions like, can this hospital move? Can this hospital shut down? Like this is, it's really shocking, especially the last handful of years. Right, because we see um, rural hospitals close especially and then one of those close there's not five around there there's one and yeah. so when it closes because it can't make it and you know we saw lakes region um general hospital not make it now it's been bought up by concord but you know even there there's limited services they to make that work they had to shut down some services um so i think they haven't figured out the financial model of that and one thing i'm working on um a story that i'm working on for the next couple of weeks is how do paramedics and ems crews fit in they are starting to become part of the healthcare delivery team um, and there's new programs popping up uh, popping up to support that and they're doing home visits now and they're doing follow-up visits. And it's just uh, the the crisis of the hospital has forced some creative um, solutions. And so I think we'll see more of those, but I'm interested in seeing that role. Like who thought, 
ambulance crews were going into homes and doing fall checks or making sure your medication wasn't conflicting with, you know, other medication. It's just, it's fascinating, but it is all a financial problem. Yeah. It's like the expansion of the emergency room problem that we've already, we've had forever here in this country only now. Mm-hmm. Oh, now you're going to call the ER right to, to your apartment, your house or wherever you happen to be at the time. It's something mm-hmm. definitely follow going forward and everyone should definitely check out NewHampshireBulletin.com with Anne-Marie Timmons reporting over there to get all the latest in healthcare stories. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you. Good to see you. I see you. NH Talk Radio to get the podcast version of the show, and I'll be licking the podcast version of the show with the articles we talk about uh, right in the show notes. This is WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kearsed. We'll be right back after this.